0: Right, welcome this morning to Emanuel uh, Bible Church. Let's go ahead and stand together and we'll sing our first song this morning. you, and that we will come humbly before your throne, God, and that we will um, think on the things that you um, have in your word, and that we will praise you this morning. Amen. Go ahead and greet each other this morning.
1: Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer, and then we'll celebrate the Lord's table. Lord, we come before you today. We're grateful for the opportunity uh, to be your children. Lord, even as we reflected in the catechism, we have been ruined by the fall and left in a state of misery and sin and death, and yet you and your great love sent your Son to die on a cross to purchase us, and we might be redeemed and know you. Thank you that we can celebrate that today as we come to the table, and as we come to the table, I pray that you would bless as we reflect and remember exactly what Jesus did on our behalf, uh, that his body was broken, his blood was shed, that we might be made right with You. So we thank You in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the table today, I always like to, to say, um, this is not the table of Emmanuel Bible Church. It's the table of the Lord. And so if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, we invite you to partake together with us. Uh, the way we have been doing um, administering the Lord's table ever since the COVID thing. Is, um, we've been using the pre-arranged um, cracker with the juice, and they're in plates here at the front and on the side. I think there's a set of plates in the back as well. And um, after we pray, while Nina is playing, we invite you to take to come and serve yourself um, because of the width of the aisles and so forth. And maybe some of you are not... Uh, It's a little more difficult for you to come forward, Um, have somebody pick it for you, or a representative of your family want to come and get for everybody else, that's great, and then hand them out there to your family. And then after a few minutes, after we've all been served, we'll come back and partake together. And so hold that, and then we'll take the bread, and then we'll take the juice. Today is June the 6th, which to anybody who knows history, is also what? D-Day. It's the day that the American and British forces landed on the beaches of Normandy, on those various places, those various beaches that had been so fortified by the Germans and, and uh, their uh, Confederates. And it truly was, in many ways, the longest day. And many men lost their lives there in the pursuit of justice and freedom. And, um, you know, that greatest generation is swiftly passing away from us. It's important that we, as a society, remember all the sacrifices, exactly what happened um, during that period of time. Uh, One of the mementos in our family that's very precious to us came from, uh, from Amy's side of the family, several different things, and and some of these things we actually didn't find until after Amy's grandparents passed away. This is a silver star um, that was awarded, and then this is a little locket, and inside it is a picture of a young man on one side and a young woman on the other side with a date on the back when they were engaged, and then here's another little thing with a Her name, Amy's grandmother's name, was was Rose. And she was a riveter on B-17 bombers. And this is a rivet from a B-17 bomber that she was assembling, I think, in Florida. And a little picture of this man that she was engaged to. And on the back of this silver star, Amy's grandpa's name was Merlin. But on the back of this silver star is the name of another man. His name is Ralph Rammel. And um, Ralph was awarded the Silver Star, which is the third highest um, combat recognition that you can get in the armed forces. He was awarded it um, posthumously after having been killed. Um, He was killed leaving his foxhole, the safety of his foxhole, to go out and to rescue some buddies who were under a mortar attack. And after Ralph left his foxhole, he was killed in that barrage and died. And so Amy's grandmother, Rose, her fiancé, literally gave his life in order that we might be free. And what's even more special to us as a family is to think Ralph gave his life so that Amy could come. If Ralph had lived and married Rose, I'd have never had my beautiful bride. And um, in a very literal way, he gave his life so someone else could live. And I often think about that with Christ. That Christ gave his life so we could live. So we could be free from sin. So we could have a home in heaven. And the most important thing for all of us is not the freedom that we enjoy in America, although I love it. The most important freedom, my friend, that you can have is a freedom from the tyranny of Satan and sin. And the only way you can have that is by a gift. When it tells us in the Scripture... The wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. It is a gift. So as we come to the table, let's remember, you know, we've just come off Memorial Day. We've got D-Day today to remember. And that's important. But as we remember and reflect today, let's remember and reflect on our Savior who shed his blood, that we might be saved. And so if you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, while Nina's playing, we invite you to just slip forward to grab uh, the elements for yourself, or your family, return to your seat, and then after a few minutes, I'll come back and we'll partake together. So Nina, if you would, why don't you go ahead and play, and then you can come and, and uh, partake um, while, we, while she plays. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he come. Isaac and Sarah, why don't you come with the music team and let's worship the Lord together as we sing and then we'll study the word. While we're singing, the men are going to come and they'll be passing the plate while we're worshiping the Lord and so Sing Thank you, Isaac and Sarah, for leading today, and uh, appreciate that very much. You could stay in the whole time, I guess, too, if you want. I don't care. If you got to stretch as we go along, feel free. Romans 9 through 11. We took a brief break from the book of Romans. We've been studying the book of Romans for well over a year, and we're in chapter 9. We took a break and did just a brief couple of weeks talking about worship. And then last week, of course, Steve King was with us. It's good to see Steve, and I know that you were blessed by his ministry among you. Today we're going back into chapter 9. And so this will be introductory. What I want to do is I want to take a look back where we've gone in the book, and then I want to take a look forward as we go further into chapter 9. So we're just going to get back into the study and uh, get our feet wet. And I imagine as we go through Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11, we're going to get a whole lot more than just our feet wet because this is pretty deep waiting. This is a portion of the book. Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 are actually probably some of the most hotly contested and debated verses and chapters in the entire Bible. There have probably been more church splits, more denominational splits, more problems that have arisen in the church understanding the issues that Paul addresses in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11 than almost any other issue doctrinally, that the church faces. In this section of the book, the Apostle Paul shifts and he begins to talk to us about the sovereignty of God in the salvation of sinners. And it is very difficult for us to be able to put together in our thinking the emphasis in Scripture on both the utter sovereignty of God, that God is in control, that salvation is of the Lord, with the parallel teaching in the Scripture that we are responsible, that God will hold us accountable, that God calls to us through the Word of God and through the ministry of the Word, through the Spirit of God, and we must respond. And if we don't, then there's no one to blame but us. For we are responsible. It is really difficult to put those two teachings and those two emphases into one package. What we find many times is we tend to go to one extreme or the other. Now, as we go through this subject we are not going to make it a historical debate or a historical study between Calvinism and Arminianism. We're not really going to go there. We'll probably mention those men somewhere along the way because it is important. But what we're going to endeavor to do is to simply go to the Word of God to look at these three chapters and to just say, what does God say? And then what does he mean? What does this mean? My prayer, I have to admit, as I've approached this section of the book of Romans and going into this section of the book of Romans, I've had more butterflies in my stomach over over this part of the study than over anything. Because I don't want in any way for anything that we study here to become a seed of division in this church or amongst Christians. My prayer for us is that as we study this deeply and as we think through what God says, we seek individually and then as a church to simply submit ourselves under the Scripture and to say, if God said it, i believe it and to trust it, even when we don't understand it. And I will promise you up front, we will not answer all your questions. When it comes to this subject, there are going to be mysteries that we will never understand, that we will never fully reconcile in our minds. We're just like pea brains, aren't we? We have chickens on our ranch. Sometimes I look at those chickens. We've got like three roosters. We've got a Rhode Island red rooster who rules the roost. We've got another little guy. I I don't know. I think he's a guinea of some sort. He's got feathers coming out everywhere in his body. Amy named him Tabasco because he's just kind of a wild, hot thing running around the ranch. He's this little guy. Got to be appropriate here, but he's really little. And... The other morning, I was out in the farmyard, and this little rooster jumps up on the back of a hen. And he's up on her back, and that chicken was so annoyed at this little rooster, she just took off running through the barnyard. And here's Tabasco taking a ride on this chicken. It was funny to watch. Then we got this other one. His name is Roadrunner. He's another little bitty thing. He's the cockiest thing I've ever seen. He's just this little bitty guy. And he just, you know, you go out to the barn and he's all the time, he runs up behind you and he's going to peck your heels. He can't get anything else because he's so small. So he'll come and maybe pecking at you or chasing you. And you just stop and look at him. And he just stops and he looks the other way like, you know, I wasn't doing anything. And then you walk away and he comes again, you know. So me and Roadrunner have this thing going. Just because he's a cocky little bugger, Whenever I get the opportunity, when I go in the hen house at night, I'm going to lock up the chickens at night so the fox don't get the hens, I'll go in there and Roadrunner will be roosted there. And I always go over and it's just dark enough, he's going to sleep. So I always pick him up and I'll put him under my arm and we'll walk around and do the rest of the chores. And I'll pet him, you know, and he'll be looking up at me. Then I'll go back and put him back in. And I was watching him the other night, you know, and he's got these little beady eyes, little head. And he's looking up at me, and I'm thinking, with that little pea brain, he has no idea what I'm doing. (laughs) He has no idea who I am. He knows nothing about my life. He doesn't even know why we take their eggs every day. He doesn't know that we like to have them fried or boiled or whatever, that they're great in a cake. He doesn't know anything. That's stupid, but look. Think about what we are in relationship to God Almighty. This infinite being who we can't even begin to fathom who is a trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one being. We can't understand that. Not only is he God Almighty who can do anything, who at the word of his power simply spoke into existence everything that we see and know. He is not powerful. And he didn't have to sit down and say, oh man, I really goofed there. i got to go fix that. No, when he did it, when he spoke it, and it came into existence, it was good, it was perfect, and it worked exactly as he intended. So the planet's We're all orbiting exactly as he wanted, in exactly the right ratios and in exactly the right distance from one another. And the sun doesn't burn up the earth and we can live here and we have oxygen and all the things that we would need he gave to us. He put coal in the ground and oil. He gave us food, everything. And he got it right and it was good, and it was perfect. Think about who He is. And then we come to this subject, and we are mystified by it. Rightly so. Because I don't think we'll ever understand it. Now, what I want to do is, we look into this, and as we begin to think about it, let's just go back and retrace where we have been in the book of Romans. The book of Romans is one of the biggest books in the New Testament as far as an epistle. In the New Testament, there are how many Gospels? Four, right? Right? Matthew, say them with me. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Each one of them records for us a portion of our Savior's life and does so from a little bit different perspective. Then we have the book of Acts. It as well is a historical narrative of the founding of the church. It gives to us a frame of reference. Then we come to the epistles. The epistles are letters that were written by Christ's apostles. The word epistle simply means a letter. And in these, we have an explanation of all the things that Jesus did and taught. And then the Holy Spirit expands on them and gives to us an inspired, inerrant explanation of the gospel and the Christian life. The book of Romans is one of the longest of those epistles, 16 chapters. In those chapters, the Apostle Paul, the Holy Spirit, is developing for us an understanding foundationally for the gospel. The most important thing that the church does in exalting God and glorifying Him and bringing us as people to worship Him is to teach and to preach and to proclaim the gospel. That is why at the beginning of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. In explaining the gospel, the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans takes us through various steps. If you'll remember, as we studied the book of Romans early in our study, we talked a lot about sin. We'll talk about sin again. It comes up all through the book. But in those first three chapters, the Apostle Paul made the focus of what he was teaching... An exposition, an explanation of what it means to be a sinner. Not only what it means to be a sinner, but what that condition has caused and what its consequence will be in our life. The consequence of being a sinner is death and hell. As we read in the Catechism. Moreover, we see in the book of Romans, none are exempt, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So he deals with sin. Listen, you will never know you need a Savior until you first recognize you have a need. And the reason for that need, the core of that need, is because we are broken in sin. So Paul deals with sin. He then deals with salvation. He talks about justification. He talks about the way we are justified, the way we are declared not guilty before God, that we are sinners, and yet God declares us not guilty. How can God do that? How can God be just and still justify you? We've used the illustration before. The judge in our district court, just out of his goodness of his heart, decided to pronounce a murderer innocent. He was guilty. He had done the deed. He stands before the judge, and the judge says, well, you know, you're really a pretty good guy. I know you're sorry for what you did. Just don't do it again. I forgive you, we forgive you, no big deal, just go on with life. How would you look at that judge? Would you think he was just? Would you think he was good? No. How can God pronounce any one of us justified? when we are truly guilty the only way he can do so and still be just is because his son jesus christ paid the price of our redemption he died for us salvation justification the next thing is sanctification so we get to chapter six Apostle Paul begins to talk to us about how then this powerful gospel works in our life in such a way that he not only saves us from the effect, the penalty of our sin, he also delivers us from the power of sin. So we don't have to live under the domination of our sin anymore. So we talked about sanctification. We got chapter 8. We talked about the security of the believer. We now get to a section where he talks about God's sovereignty. And this is what I'm going to begin to introduce to us today. At the end of the book, when we get to chapter 12, he's going to talk about service. He's going to talk about those practical things. Gifts, Christian liberty, and other aspects of our faith. Now we begin to talk about God's sovereignty. Now, here's the central question. Do you remember how we ended chapter 8? Can anything separate you from God's love? Nothing. Not height? Not depth? Not any created thing. Nothing can separate us from God's love. Paul then foresees there's going to be an objection. His readers are going to read that, and they're going to have a question. Here's the question that they're going to ask. Since nothing can separate us from God's love, then what happened to Israel? since nothing can separate us from God's love, since we are absolutely secure, then what happened to Israel? Did God cast off his people that he foreknew? Is he done with Israel? What happened? That is the central question. And so in this section, the Apostle Paul is going to heavily discuss the Old Testament people of Israel. What happened to them? What happened when they disobeyed God and God puts them on a shelf? What happened when they rejected Jesus Christ and they crucified Him? What happened? At that point, did God cast off Israel? And if he did, if God divorced Israel, then what does that say about me? What if I disobey him? Will he divorce me? Well, he just said nothing can cause him to separate from us. So this is the core question. If God divorced Israel, will he also divorce the church? And how does that dovetail with chapter 8 when he says nothing can separate us from God's love? That's the core question. That gives the framework of what the Apostle Paul is discussing here. Having said that, let's jump into these three chapters for a minute and let's look at them in an overview. Okay, let's just do an overview so you know where we're going. We're going to get down into the nitty-gritty of it but let's do an overview. Look at how he begins in chapter 9, verse 1. Right after saying... Let's, let's go back to chapter 8. So we put that back in our mind. In verse 37 of chapter 8, he says, "...in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am persuaded, I am certain, neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor power, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able, will have the power to separate us from God's love in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. And then he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And notice what Paul says here. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites. To them belongs the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. And then he says in verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God had failed. And then he makes the statement. Notice this. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. In other words, Paul is going to begin to make a mention here and to begin to develop the truth that there is a national election of Israel. God chose the nation of Israel as His chosen people to whom the Messiah would come. There is a national election. But there is also an individual choice. Not everyone who is in the national group, ethnicity of Israel, belongs to spiritual Israel. See how he makes that point? Listen to it this way. We just talked about security. Now, there was great blessing for the Jewish people to be born as a Jew. They had the law, they had the worship, all the things that we just read. Great blessings by being ethnically an Israelite. But not everyone in that category has individually been saved. Did you know there is great blessing in being born into the church? By being born into a Christian home by being raised in an environment by a mom and dad who love you, who take you to church and pour their life into you. There's great blessing in that. There's also great responsibility, like with Israel. But here's the truth. Not everybody that is a part of the ethnic church, the visible church, is of the spiritual church. And exteriors, seen things, can be very deceiving. And so, Paul is going to develop this. There is great blessing in being born corporately into the people of God, but there's also great responsibility with that. And we will see at the end of this section, he says, Let us fear. An understanding of our security in Christ should never leave us or lead us to presumption. To simply presume that since I'm a part of the church and I'm in a Christian home, I've got everything going for me, I'm on my way to heaven, I'm good to go. Maybe not. Maybe not, for there are spiritual realities that go way deeper, and God has no grandkids. We must individually, personally deal with Him in the matter of repentance and faith. Now, notice with me the chapter, so he begins in chapter 9, and he is going to deal with the Undisputable sovereign hand of God. Notice verse 14. What shall we then say? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Mer- to Moses, Notice this, I will have mercy on whomever I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whomever I will have compassion." So then, it does not depend on human will or exertion, but it completely depends on God who has the mercy. Then you get to chapter 10. And in chapter 10, you know what he's going to say? I just want us to think about this beautiful balance in the Scripture. In chapter 9, he's going to say, it is God who shows mercy, it is God who has compassion, and everything depends on Him. And we're going to get to chapter 10, we're going to get to verse 13, and he's going to say in those verses, he's going to say, for whoever, for whoever, think about that, for whoever the free offer, Romans 10, 13. For whoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be what? Saved. Saved. If it is in your heart to call on Jesus Christ for His mercy, He will save you. If you do not call upon Him and you do not trust Him, Your sin condemns you already, and you will be lost. Then we get to chapter 11, and he's going to go back to the subject of Israel. He's going to talk about Israel, he's going to talk about ethnic Israel. And so what I want us to think about here, as we go through this, there's going to be these continual themes. We're going to talk a lot about ethnic Israel, we're going to talk about God's sovereignty, and we're going to talk about human responsibility. So I probably won't really please anybody because if you're a hyper-Calvinist, you won't like me. And if you're a hyper-Arminian, you won't like what we have to say. But what we're going to attempt to do is just stay with the book. And when the Bible says this, then we're going to say this. It depends on God. And we'll stand on it. And then when we get to chapter 10, and he says to us, "...whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved." We're going to rejoice in that and we're going to preach that. We'll just teach the Scripture. And we'll go through it verse by verse and we'll try to come to an understanding of what God is saying to us, not only about who He is, but about how we are responsible and what we must do in response to His mercy. So we'll talk about ethnic Israel, we'll talk about sovereignty, we'll talk about responsibility, we'll talk about uh, the church, and then we'll summarize it and bring it all together. Look at the end of chapter 11. At the end of chapter 11, in verse 33, he says this, "O oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God! How unsearchable are His judgments, and how are inscrutable are His ways! For who has known the mind of the Lord? who has been his counselor, who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. Now, there are three lessons that I hope to develop real quickly today and then we're going to close. (coughs) You know, it is so easy for us. We're so prone to extremes. I know I am. We all are. We tend to get on our hobby horses, the pendulum swings, and we go over here, and then we're over here. There are three lessons that I want to draw our attention to in these three chapters that will undergird what we talk about over the next few weeks. One of the lessons that I think is very important is when we are talking about the sovereignty of God, the sovereign wisdom of God, the sovereign power of God is that when we truly understand the sovereignty of God, that confirms to us that God loves fallen men. He loves men. In chapter 9, verse 1, Paul is here writing, he says, I am speaking the truth, I am not lying. My, test, my, my, my spirit bears testimony with me in the Holy Spirit. He says, I have continual grief in my heart for my kinsmen who don't know Christ. It is inconceivable for me to think of the Apostle Paul having that kind of anguish. Where well, he would say, I could even wish that I was accursed from Christ, and think that somehow that operates in his life, independent of the Holy Spirit. What I mean by that is this. It's not like God only loves certain people, And everybody else, tough luck. But Paul somehow must be better and greater than God, more perfect than God, because in his heart, he loves his people. He loves the nation of Israel. He would die for them. He would be willing to be a curse from Christ for them so that they could be saved. He was willing. Think about what Paul was willing to do. He was willing to endure beatings, bloodshed, shipwreck. All those things Paul was willing to endure those things so his people and other people could hear the gospel. He loved people that much. It is inconceivable to think that he could have that kind of love for people and did not come from God. It had to come from God, didn't it? That's God's love. Which tells me what? God loves people. And when God lives in your life, in power, when the Holy Spirit fills you, you know what that makes you do? You don't walk around with your nose up in the air thinking you're better than everyone else. No! What does it make us do? It breaks our heart. For those who don't know Christ it causes us to weep and to grieve. How often is it that in our prayer closet, on our knees, our heart is broken for our neighbors? How often? And I don't say that pointing my finger at you. I say that with four pointing at me because it is so easy to have a hard heart. But I'll submit to you, the more you love God, the more you walk with God, the deeper we know His heart, the more we will feel love for those who are standing on the precipice of eternity and ready to fall into the flames of eternal hell. So, this should not just be like head knowledge that causes us to think about the chosen frozen or the frozen chosen, whatever way you want to put that. This should be a knowledge of a God who loves We see it in Paul's life. Number two, a right understanding, a right view of sovereignty embraces human responsibility. We will see that in chapter 10. We have to understand that in the context of the wisdom of God, somehow, in a way, in a mystery, we do not understand. God does hold us responsible for the choices that we make and the place that we put our faith. And so we see that there is a dovetail, there is a putting together in the Scripture in this great section in which we talk about the sovereignty of God. He also talks about human responsibility. And one of the things we will see here is this. He's going to talk about faith. We're saved by faith. And faith comes from what? He says in Romans ten seventeen: Faith comes from hearing the Word of Christ. The last thing that we will see about a right view of sovereignty is a right view of sovereignty destroys human pride and exalts God. I guarantee someone who looks at their election and somehow they get proud and haughty and high-minded with that, They have completely lost the spirit of the scripture. For when we truly understand, it is not of the one who wills, it is not of human exertion, as he says, it is of God who shows the mercy. And then you look at yourself, and I look at myself. And I say, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on me, that I should be called a child of God. There is nothing in me that is worth that. It destroys human pride. It is so easy to be proud It is the default setting of the human spirit. Go with me to John 8 and we'll close with this. I want to just show you something in John chapter 8. In John chapter 8, Jesus is having a conversation uh, with the Jews of His day. This is important because we will be talking about the Jewish people much. And in this conversation with these people who are thinking of themselves as God's chosen people, They are rejecting Jesus. (coughs) And he says to them in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And in verse 33, they say, we are offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works that Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. They then make an accusation. They say to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. And then he makes a statement of these people who are the physical offspring of Abraham, but not the spiritual offspring of Abraham. He says, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. What's the point? The Jews were exalted in pride in their day. We are the offspring of Israel. We are the offspring of Abraham. We are the chosen. And they totally missed it. That there is a deeper spiritual reality that must permeate our life in the person and work of Jesus Christ or we totally miss it. So it can happen so easily to us who were raised in the church. And so we examine ourselves. And so we'll come back to the Scripture next week. We'll jump into chapter 9. And we'll just go verse by verse. We'll try to explain what he's saying. And we'll try to understand what it means that God is a sovereign God who completely and totally governs in the affairs of men. And then we'll seek that we may submit ourselves under his hand to do his will and to walk in humility. So let's close in a word of prayer, and Isaac will come back and with Sarah and lead us in a closing song. Lord, we come before You today and we thank You for Your Word. We are humbled that You would set Your love upon us and You would choose us in Christ and You would save us. Lord, we like to think of ourselves as being in charge of our own fate and masters of our destiny, and yet we see in the Word that You are a sovereign God. And you have chosen to allow us, each of us, to be in this place, to hear your word, to know the name of Jesus. That is according to your sovereign plan. Oh, Father, I pray that there would grow within each one who is here that seed of faith to look to Jesus Christ and him alone. And so we pray in Jesus' name.
0: Go ahead and stand with us as we close in singing. Strength as we uh, head out uh, this afternoon, and I just ask that you will burden our hearts and allow us to think on uh, what Pastor Tim um, presented to us today. And as we uh, continue this study as we move forward, that we will really truly understand um, what you have done for us, and that we will put aside our pride, and that we will run to you. We love you, Jesus. Amen. You are dismissed.